Uh, I'm John Murray, and my job this evening is to introduce our speaker. I just want to say a few words to put this evening's uh, session in context, and then a few words about the speaker. Uh, this is the third of the autumn term public events in the LSE's Department of Law's Legal Biography Project. The first event was Lord Bingham in conversation with Professor Ross Cranston. Uh, that was a complete sellout, if anybody here was there. Uh, or who was there with uh, The second event was last week's panel uh, having a discussion on legal biography, and that was chaired by Lord Roger. And this evening's event is a talk by Dr. Stephen Crepton under the provoking title Are Solicitors Lives Necessarily Boring? Well, you might like to have a little bit of biography about him. Uh, uh, he's a solicitor. Uh, <laughs> Uh, who is a partner in the firm of McFarlane's, and I can tell you his life certainly hasn't been boring. Not many solicitors, indeed not many law have clocked up fellowships at two Oxford colleges, Exeter and All Souls, a Doctor of Civil Law at the University, an honorary QC, a fellowship of the British Academy, a term as a law commissioner, a chair of law, at Bristol University and membership of numerous committees and tribunals, not to say authorship of some excellent books on family law and related subjects crowned by his truly magisterial history of family law in the 20th century. Uh, another biographical item which some of you will be aware of, and you may blush at my mentioning it, is that Dr. Cretney enjoyed his three minutes of media celebrity a few years ago, when his views on the law relating to the second marriage of the Prince of Wales at the Windsor, District, Windsor Registry Office uh, was published in the newspapers. In addition to the biographical details in the massive footnotes of his history of family law, he's done some very interesting biographical writing recently on solicitors. Uh, he has written an article which is published in the Cambridge Law Journal on the life of Sir Percy Withers, who was the uh, founder of the firm practicing now as Withers LLP. It's a fascinating piece of personal, professional, social and political history of the late 19th and early 20th century. He's also written quite a lot of entries in the new Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. And he's been kind enough to send me something that I don't think has yet been published, and that is his memoir, which is to be published in the Proceedings of the British Academy, on Sir Robert McGarry, who's a very difficult chap to classify in biographical terms. He was a legal polymath, solicitor, crammer, law teacher, author, barrister, QC, lecturer, chancery judge, and finally vice-chancellor of the Supreme Court. Which leads me to introduce you to another legal polymath, Dr. Crepton. necessarily boring. I think there's a recruitment campaign going on perhaps in this building for accountants. So you might just possibly be able to see whether that profession is more or less boring. Uh, but actually, 
Now, what I'm talking about is not so much the reality of What? It seems to me I'm not talking about Could somebody deal with it? Do you know how to deal with it? not actually the reality of solicitors' lives which I'm primarily concerned with, but how we find out about that and whether biographies of solicitors are necessarily boring. Eighty years ago, a young man just down from Oxford who had been provided by his mother with a six-bedroom flat on the edge of Hampstead Heath, complete with the services of a housekeeper, started life as, in the real world, in his uncle's solicitor's firm. The experience was deeply uncongenial. From the first day, he wrote, I realised I had made a ghastly mistake. The work, such as it was, bored me. After six months of solitary unhappiness, I broke my articles and became a free man. The young man who chose freedom in this way was A.J.P. Allen Taylor. Later, an inspirational figure as a man of the left, a hugely successful historian and media figure. Perhaps his boredom wouldn't be surprising if the uncle's firm had been one of those decent private client firms in Bloomsbury or somewhere. But in fact... Taylor's uncle was W.H. Thompson, a member of the Communist Party of Great Britain, a conscientious objector who'd served several prison sentences, represented George Lansbury and the other popular guardians, and acted for the communist leaders arrested in 1925 for publishing seditious libels and other offences under the Incitement to Mutiny Act. It'd be difficult to imagine a legal milieu apparently more congenial for a young man of left-wing or at least radical tendencies, even in terms of material prospects. And I think it is fair to say that in later life, Taylor was criticised sometimes by uh, some of his possibly envious professional historian contemporaries for an excessive interest in financial matters. Uh, even in respect of that, he may have made a mistake, for W.H. Thompson has been one of the legal profession's success stories. It claims to be the largest national specialist personal injury practice in the United Kingdom, with over 800 staff and 19 offices in England and Wales. And although the firm's partnership deed provides, I'm taking this of course from its website, its principal object this is what the website says, is to assist trade unions and their members. And it isn't an object of the partnership to earn for the partners the maximum income which they would be capable of earning in general practice. But in spite of that, it's perhaps reasonable to suppose that the earnings of the partners in that firm 
compare favorably with those of the great majority of professional historians. But even so, that leaves the question, had he become a solicitor, would Alan Taylor's life have remained as boring as his experience in articles had suggested that it might? Alan Taylor is not the only dropout from a legal career uh, who can claim that an aversion to boredom was the determining factor in making him decide that the solicitor's profession was not for him. The distinguished biographer Michael Holroyd was told by his father, you probably have had these conversations yourself, uh, that since he was so given to arguing, he'd better take up a profession that would pay him to do so. So the young Michael Holroyd left Eton to take up five years' articles with a Windsor firm selected on the basis that the senior partner was a drinking companion of Holroyd's father. But unhappily, the firm had little notion of what to do with him. So he was sent up to a modest office, he describes this, under the attic, where a thin, bent, sun-starved, middle-aged solicitor worked encircled by papers and hopes that the young Holroyd would in this way acquire a mastery of the law of torts soon faded. All I did in the first weeks was to practice making tea and coffee, he tells us. And uh, later, it's true, he was taken to the Windsor County Court to sniff the legal atmosphere, as his colleagues described it, but he found himself sitting out long days trying to keep awake in the afternoon. Uh, it's true, he had some excitement. For example, being shot at whilst trying to serve a writ. But these were insufficient to hold him in the profession. It may be. One of Holroyd's great works is a huge encyclopedic uh, biography of George Bernard Shaw. And it may be that uh, the volume dealing with the aftermath of Shaw's life, which deals with the... Um, fate of Shaw's will, which many of you will know, contains a marvellous piece of lucid English prose by which Shaw sought to promote a British alphabet, only to have Mr Justice Harmon hold it to be void. It may be possible that reflected an as yet unacknowledged benefit derived from a spell in the probate department. So all this, I think, reinforces the image of the solicitor's profession as sketched by Roy Fuller, another distinguished solicitor, director of the Woolwich Equitable Building Society, chairman of the Building Society Association's Legal Advisory Committee, but still much better known as a poet, professor of poetry at Oxford, member of the Arts Council, governor of the BBC, and so on. Fuller's first job, after admission as a solicitor, was as manager of a branch office of a solicitor's firm in Blackpool, run not, as you will know, a place nowadays favoured by our political parties uh, as a glamorous venue for their intellectual conference discussions. But this branch office was run from two rooms over a bank with a staff of one stenographer office boy. But that proved economically unviable and uh, he, Fuller, was moved to a, an assistance job doing advocacy for a fee of three pounds a go in what he describes as the second best of the three solicitors firms in Ashford, Kent, not then a boom town. 
the partners in the firm, he says, were the, almost, they were almost exclusively concerned with the ordinary affairs of humanity, moving house, say, or dying. Fuller's account of life at this level in the legal profession in the 1930s is wonderfully evocative. Of course, it's all highly impressionistic, but the picture is to some extent reinforced by the outstanding 1967 study of the legal profession by Abel Smith and Stevens, Lawyers in the Courts, which concluded that such prosperity as the solicitor's profession enjoyed at that time, late, six, late 60s, was indeed founded on conveyancing and related matters. And of course, everyone here will know that there have been huge changes in the 40 years which have elapsed since Abel Smith and Stevens was published. As in all professions, touting and advertising, no doubt in those days, took place, but it wasn't to be admitted. Much less was it to become the huge and no doubt lucrative business for the advertising and public relations industries, which it now appears to be. And to judge from city firms' promotional material, for them at least, moving house has been replaced by property and construction, often involving, of course, sophisticated financing, tax-efficient vehicles such as special-purpose companies and offshore funds. Even boring old probate has, at any rate for some, become international, requiring such abilities as uh, familiarity with Sharia law or such complications as uh, arise when a person domiciled in Russia uh, has all his assets in a Panamanian company uh, held in a trust subject to English law. And there is, of course, much, much more. We are now in a world in which most firms recruiting on any substantial scale from the universities give mouth-watering tales of the excitements of mergers and acquisitions, commercial contracts, financing, property, competition, international tax planning, and so on. And let us not forget humanitarian law, of course, sometimes controversial. A different image is conveyed, was conveyed a little while ago to readers of The Guardian. How top law, London law firms help vulture funds devour their prey was a headline for a full-page story in that uh, uh, excellent newspaper with a large photograph of a malnourished African child closely watched by a vulture and captioned, soaking the poor. Nothing like impartial journalism. Today, boredom seems the antithesis of the solicitor's life. And certainly the market would seem to support that view. In the year 2 to 31st of July 2006, the Law Society registered 5,751 training contracts, more than half of the candidates being women. Fifty years ago, the Society was registering less than 1,000 articles each year. The number of admissions to the row is now some 7,000 a year, ten times the yearly average in the late 1950s. There are now nearly 105,000 solicitors holding practicing certificates, nearly six times the number in the late 1950s. And the profession is now very much a young person's occupation. More than half of those holding practicing certificates have been qualified for ten years or less. 
These young people, most of whom could no doubt have chosen to be, if not investment bankers, at least accountants or even perhaps actuaries, would presumably not join and would certainly not remain in a profession where their lives would be boring. And yet, whilst I think no one could doubt that there has been a period of great change, the extent of that change is a matter on which it would be unwise to dogmatise. I've drawn on the promotional material which substantial London firms produce. And it's true that nearly 40% of solicitors in private practice work in firms with more than 25 partners. A very far cry from the 1960s when statute prohibited firms from having more than 20 partners. Yet these large firms constitute less than 2% of the total. 87% of solicitors' firms have fewer than five partners. A comprehensive 21st century study of these and other changes in the structure and work of the legal profession would be of great interest and value. Uh, there is, of course, material gathered by various official committees, uh, but as far as I know, no comprehensive study is in hand. But in any event, a macro study, a large-scale study of that kind, would probably not tell us very much about the experience of individual solicitors. It wouldn't, actually, it wouldn't answer the question, what do you actually do all day? Much less would it answer the question, what have you done with your life? We seem to have comparatively few materials from which we can even begin to picture the reality of solicitors' everyday lives and activities, and indeed of their lifetime achievements. It's true that a few solicitors have written autobiographies. Some have been the subject, even, of biographies. Indeed, Arnold, later Lord Goodman, not only wrote his own autobiography under the wonderfully resonant title, Tell Them I'm On My Way!, but is the subject of two serious academic biographies. Yet most of this material is about men who happened to be solicitors, but were of interest primarily because of their political or other public activities. Sometimes, of course, private practice and public life are closely intertwined, as was no doubt the case with Eric, later Lord Fletcher, founder of the firm of Denton Hall and Bergen, who in 1964 was chosen by Harold Wilson to be Solicitor General, only to be denied the office on the ground that a solicitor wasn't qualified to be Solicitor General. So perhaps that episode confirms that at least at that time there was some truth in Alan Taylor's assessment made in the context of the life of David Lloyd George, the only solicitor ever to have become Prime Minister, of solicitors as the other ranks of a rigidly stratified profession in which it was the barristers who were the officers and gentlemen. And it is certainly true that biographical sources for the professional lives of barristers are far richer than those for solicitors. And if we compare the number of entries for the two professions in the Dictionary of National Biography, the truth of Lord Bingham's remark that solicitors were greatly underrepresented in the original dictionary is immediately apparent. For example, in one uh, period, 1986 to 1990, 16 barristers and judges were memorialized in this work, but only a single solicitor, uh, Ash Wheatcroft, GSA Wheatcroft, 
latterly a professor in this school. As Lord Bingham says, the new Oxford Dictionary of National Biography rectifies these omissions to some extent, but the disparity is still remarkable. Even the first woman to be admitted a solicitor doesn't qualify, notwithstanding the fact that the person concerned, Miss Carrie Morrison, gave proof of her remarkable qualities, not only by winning the race, actually a, an athletic race, down Chancery Lane, which determined which of four eligible women should actually be the first on the road, but had also seen active service in the Army of the Black Sea at Constantinople. Obviously a woman of parts, but we know nothing about her, or very, very little about her. Lord Bingham suggested that the underrepresentation reflects the reticence of a profession that does good by stealth and doesn't very often blush to find it fame. And it's certainly true that respect for confidence is not only of the essence of a solicitor's ethical code, but is also a fundamental legal obligation. But is there perhaps slightly more to it than that. Now, as Lord Justice Mamory remarked, I have some experience of trying to pierce the veil uh, in the case of John Withers. I was very struck in the course of researching the history of family law by the extent to which individuals had seemed to have had a significant and sometimes decisive impact on the course of events. And it soon became clear that Withers was one of those people who was relied on by the Lord Chancellor's permanent secretary, who in those days was an extremely powerful figure in Whitehall, to give sound advice on such matters as the law of divorce and inheritance. So I wondered, who was this man? What qualities did he have? Who was he? He was very close to the centre of power, it was quite clear, but his primary vocation was as a prominent London private client and divorce lawyer. So perhaps I can just give you a very brief case study of what I did find and what I didn't. Actually, uh, it doesn't take very much effort to find out about the main outlines of John Withers' career. Most of the relevant facts could be found in that admirable publication, Who Was Who? Uh, Withers was born in 1863. He was the son of a solicitor. He was educated at Eton and King's College, Cambridge, where he read classics, never believed in people reading law. He was admitted as solicitor in 1890, practiced for six years in partnership with his father, then broke away to practice uh, on his own account and then with his younger brother. And over the next 20 years or so, the firm practicing from just over the road with six partners became, with six partners, incredible though it seems now, that was then one of the largest firms in London. And we can also see from the bare record that he cultivated a close association with Cambridge, with his old university. And uh, then in 1926, he was uh, returned as a unionist, we now call them conservatives, as a unionist candidate for the university constituency of Cambridge University, a seat which he retained until his death in 1939. He left an estate of £3 million in today's value. Uh, 
which he left subject to making provision for his widow and others to be divided between the two Cambridge colleges with which he'd been associated. So there you are, an everyday story of the privileged professional classes in pre-World War II Britain. What more should anyone want to know? I was, of course, lucky to get so far so easily because Withers was in who's who, because he was a member of parliament, not because he was a solicitor. And whereas everyone who becomes a Queen's Counsel will have an entry in that work, comparatively few solicitors in private practice are included. Of course, we do have other sources. There are obituaries in the uh, Times and other uh, newspapers uh, which can provide a great deal of information. Uh, other associations, schools, colleges, in Withers's case, his interest in alpine mountaineering was of huge importance, and that by itself would make a very interesting mini-study, the association between alpinism and high judicial office and prestigious practice in the legal profession at this period was very important. And we can find out a lot about Withers' life from the lengthy obituary published in the Journal of the Alpine Club in 1940 by Sir Claude Schuster. So uh, there are other sources. But of course any real biographer, those of you who came uh, to the very interesting discussion last week will know that uh, any serious biographer uh, has to have papers and uh, I must say I was uh, interested but surprised by the fact that uh, at any rate Professor Jardine uh, seemed to suggest that the trouble with papers was that there were too many of them and you, uh, this is not true of most uh, lawyers for reasons which I will uh, talk about in a moment or two. So uh, papers are of course important and they can be really exciting reading. Uh, I still get a thrill, I must confess, it demonstrates I'm sure my immaturity, but when I see in the National Archives a document headed top secret and strictly personal, it makes my day. Uh, even if, or particularly if, what it actually contains is one senior civil servant writing to another, announcing with joy that something has happened which makes it possible to refrain from legislating for a good long time. So uh, there are papers undoubtedly have a value. Uh, with us himself didn't leave any archive of personal papers, but there were uh, papers which I came across in other collections, particularly in King's College, Cambridge, which has, and it has to be said that academic institutions differ a great deal in the care which they take in respect of their archives. King's is an absolute model. This may have something to do with the fact that they were associated in various ways with the Bloomsbury Group, and that is big business. 
And uh, that may be the reason or the, the, the prompting factor, if you like, why uh, they keep uh, decided evidently to devote such a lot of resources to their archive centre. And in the case of Withers, everybody said you won't find any papers about him. Well, actually, there are quite a lot. Um, there are quite a lot because he wrote to his friends, one of whom was the notorious Oscar Browning. Uh, this man uh, had been dismissed, sacked from his very lucrative post as a housemaster at Eton because of the inappropriate, to use the language of the time, relationship which he'd formed with one of his pupils, George Nathaniel Curzon, subsequently Viceroy of India and Foreign Secretary. Uh, Browning kept up a huge correspondence with his many young friends, and we find him writing at length with his mother when her 21-year-old son was taken seriously ill. Perhaps wisely, Mrs. Withers tactfully rejected Browning's offer to take her son to Cannes to recuperate. But the friendship between Browning and Withers survived, admittedly, with some ups and downs, especially when Browning himself became Withers' client. And it throws quite a lot of light on this correspondence, throws quite a lot of light on Withers from his undergraduate days through his early years as a solicitor, and to the time when he was recognized and established. More to the point, possibly, the archives of correspondence with uh, Cambridge friends, King's friends, King's College friends, uh, contains quite a bit of material showing something of the way in which Withers, and presumably he wasn't... Uh, unique in the way in which he went about building up a practice. We can learn quite a lot about this from these letters to friends. He lobbied for a long time, and in the end successfully, to be appointed King's College's London solicitor. And that was probably the foundation of his success, which brought him a large amount of work as the college began to develop its estates in Ricelip and uh, other places in the outer suburbs of London. And then he was uh, loyal to his old college. He worked devotedly as secretary of the college old members association. It brought him a great deal of business indirectly, especially uh, with the comparatively small number of King's uh, graduates who uh, had uh, means. Quite interesting that at that time, although the image of Cambridge is that of a gilded youth, perhaps the single largest and much the largest uh, destination, employment destination of graduates of King's College as being school teachers. Uh, so, but anyhow, there were one or two who were exceptional, one of whom was Bulmer, a man called Edward Bulmer, of the cider factor, fact, sorry, cider makers, perhaps I've had too much of their product. Um, <laughs> Bulmer, Withers wrote to Bulmer saying, Would you, um, do you know anyone who might want to uh, invest a bit of money? Do you want, uh, I, I've got somebody who wants a capable partner with £5,000, which is about £350,000 in today's value. I have a number of people with money who are anxious to invest in good concerns, and I may be able to help you. So that's the sort of way in which things were. Uh, sorted out. And there are others 
other examples of this approach. So we can build up from this uh, material some sort of picture about how he went hunting for business. Uh, and we can speak quite confidently about two other aspect, aspects of his professional practice. The first is his attitude to recruiting colleagues. Uh, of course, we do have to remember that a large proportion of the activity in a firm like Withers in pre-World War II England was handled by managing clerks, badly paid, ruthlessly exploited. And we can readily find material suggesting that Wills was extremely fortunate in selecting uh, such people. But the selection of partners was even more important, for it was they who attracted and hopefully kept the clients, whilst the managing clerks did a large proportion of the routine work. For example, in 1922, we find Withers recruiting William Heriwood Charles Rollo, known as Bill, son of the 12th Baron Rollo, uh, Old Etonian, military cross. Uh, he was recruited specifically for his connections amongst the society of his day, and in particular the hunting fraternity. And he was told to go away, don't bother to come in for six months, get to know everyone before settling in. And Rollo was to be an important influence in the firm for 40 years until his death uh, in 1962, uh, sadly but appropriately, whilst out hunting. Uh, in 1923, we find Withers seeking the help of the socialist king's don Nathaniel Wedd in finding, I quote, a good king's Etonian, a man of very good family and position, with some money, such a man was the sort of person the firm was looking for to join them. And the same pattern, Eden, good family, landed connections, distinguished war service, continued, culminating in 1937, the year in which Withers himself retired as a partner, with the admission of Arthur Collins, grandson of a duke, son of an officer in the household cavalry, uh, someone who himself was to serve in the armed forces throughout World War II, with enormous distinction in the household cavalry uh, and uh, ultimately in 1980 appointed a knight commander of the Royal Victorian Order, a mark of personal appreciation by the Queen. Now, of course, it is difficult. Perhaps I haven't resisted the possibility. It's difficult for those of us from a different social background not to allow the lip to curl slightly at some of this. And yet, we must remind ourselves, first of all, that actually this method of recruitment applied almost throughout the English employment scene at this time. You got jobs by knowing people, by your family suggesting that they knew somebody who would give you a job at quite a low uh, level in the socio-economic scale. So it wasn't altogether unusual. But in any event, as far as Withers was concerned, he would say, well, what I was looking for were people who could do the job, people who are competent, people in whom my clients will have confidence. And he insisted that those who joined the firm should be self-motivated, practical, active, keen, and popular, and above all, that they should be able to attract clients to the firm by demonstrating these uh, facts. 
attracting potential clients was very much part of the business. Sir Arthur Collins, whom I mentioned, uh, seems to have worked with the same efficiency in this role, getting clients, as he displayed on the battlefield during World War II. He kept a table of the clients he'd collected, i.e. won over, from other solicitors' firms, and he kept a list of those firms from whom he had, as they would no doubt have said, poached uh, clients. So it is uh, an illustration of how things went on, at any rate, in that particular firm and possibly generally in that kind of practice. But the second striking fact which emerges from the available material uh, is the enormous strain which his work imposed on Withers. Uh, In 1922, he admitted that he was bored. He desperately wanted some relaxation of the strain he'd been under for 35 years, that there seemed to be no escape. One just has to go on trying to persuade oneself that going on is an end desirable in itself to keep up one's spirits and energy. And so he did, successfully concealing his problems from his clients. There was some relief for him. Uh, He uh, moved into public life, notably as Member of Parliament for Cambridge University. Nowadays, of course, the comparable move would be a a life peerage. And although the university franchise is widely regarded as a dreadful scandal, at least uh, these people who were really rather distinguished on the whole, uh, were elected and could be uh, rejected subsequently by the electors, which is not true of those who were appointed to life peerages. Um, So he got some relief. But Lord Wright, who was a great friend throughout his uh, professional career, described with us as having a strong and almost puritanic devotion to duty, and a constant sense that no time must be wasted from the effort to do good. So it was all too much. And Sir Claude Schuster, uh, in this moving obituary in the Alpine Journal, uh, gave it as his belief that in the last decade of Withers' life, the unselfish discharge of his many heavy responsibilities, public and professional, told at last, even on his fine constitution. He was persuaded to seek some relief from incessant work, but it came too late. His resilience was gone, and his later years were clouded by failing strength and by the anxieties of the political situation, and this was almost physical. So perhaps there's something to be learned there uh, for today's uh, solicitors. So so much for Withers. I think the work I did on him was of some value, uh, but then I would, wouldn't I? Over and over again, though, I have to admit, we don't really know. There's no uh, evidence. And um, I was able to, because uh, in those days, uh, newspapers carried full uh, reports of divorce cases, I was able to build up a hypothesis uh, from these that Withers had identified the fact that divorce was a growth market in those days and uh, capitalized on it. 
But actually, if I were writing a de Phil thesis, I wouldn't have said that in such unequivocal terms. Because actually the truth of the matter is, it's a hypothesis, it's a plausible hypothesis, but the evidence for it is not great. And this is one of the problems. All biographers have to cope with the law of copyright, uh, which actually many authors seem to have little knowledge, uh, and very few indeed have anything approaching a comprehensive knowledge. Copyright owners have the whip hand. Do not assume that because you have a copy of a letter or even a photocopy of a book readily available in libraries, that you can quote from it without the consent of the owners, whoever they may be, and sometimes it's quite difficult to find this out. So you ask for the necessary permissions, because, of course, you have given a warranty to your publishers that, uh, um, that um, uh, you have done this, that you're not uh, trespassing on anyone's copyright. Uh, so you will do this. And if the owners impose conditions, you will, unless you have huge resources at your disposal, accept them. There's no realistic alternative. Various publishers of well-known works of fiction uh, gave me permission to quote only on terms that I included or failed to include, left out certain matters. There's no realistic alternative to that. But the biographer of a practicing solicitor has special problems, which arise because, subject to some narrow exceptions, nothing that passes between solicitor and client can be revealed without the client's express consent. So uh, that is an absolute full stop to the typical literary biography of a practicing solicitor, that you will not be able to make use of the solicitor's professional correspondence. So that is a major problem. And at the end of the day, as I say, I'm not totally ashamed of what I did about Withers, but at the end of the day, really, I could have found out with a bit of imagination almost as much as I did at the end, just by looking at who's who. There isn't really a huge amount more. Certainly the hypothesis about how he decided to grow his practice, as the modern mode of speech has it, uh, is, 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 is tenuous. So uh, the professional lives of most solicitors are and will remain a closed book. Most solicitors, although I believe many of them do a huge amount of good and have exciting and interesting lives, have no memorial. Does it matter? Well, again, you can guess what answer I'm going to give. I believe it does matter at several levels. The most obvious is legal history. Academics of the post-World War II world have experienced several fashions in law teaching. First, there was the case study, remorseless analysis of Donahue and Stevenson and other cases, uh, remorseless analysis of decisions of the courts. And then we were told that this was, if not totally useless, uh, at least seriously defective. What we needed to do, we were told, was to look at what the courts, and the lower in the hierarchy they were, the better they were, for this purpose, uh, we needed to look at what the courts actually did. And then 
There was socio-legal research through surveys and other methodologies to find out what impact the law had on those affected by it. All these actually, I believe, have some value. But I don't know where biography fits into it all. I do believe that biography could greatly increase our understanding of the solicitor's profession and what it contributes to the legal system and to society. Let me give a rather banal illustration of what I mean. Withers's will, Sir John Withers' will, is a document of public record, of course. They're, they're actually rather underused by historians and biographers. He made provision for his family by way of life interests and annuities. Had he been practicing 20 or 30 years later, I'm absolutely sure that his will, albeit intended to achieve the same objectives, would have contained very different provisions. Wouldn't it be of interest to future legal historians to have a practicing solicitor's account of the techniques which were in use? For example, all academic uh, lawyers know about discretionary trusts in part because there's case law in them. They also know about the statutory techniques available to vary the provisions of rules. And again, there's case law. But it's, different, it's difficult to understand how these tools at the lawyer's disposal are used in practice and why. And I do have the uneasy feeling that in the academic community there is a feeling that whereas the impact of the statute of uses is a legitimate subject of scholarly interest, the techniques used in the post-World War II world to minimize the impact of taxation are not. And another example might be the impact of changes in the practice of land transfer. Uh, huge in the past 50 or 60 years. What difference has it made? The choice between different forms of business structure, company, partnership, limited liability partnership, is another example. And what impact have these changes in the legal structure of solicitors' own practices had on decision-taking within practices? You may find it difficult to believe that when I was a young solicitor, possibly an article clerk, I was told by a senior partner in the firm that partnership was a relationship closer than marriage. Well, today you'd have to be a very committed believer in polygamy to use that particular uh, example. What impact has this change in the structure of many solicitors' firms at any rate had on their working lives. And then there's client gathering, how do contingency fees, advertising and so on affect actual practice uh, outside perhaps the fairly obvious field of personal injuries claims. What about the relationship traditionally extremely difficult to explain uh, between solicitors and counsel, especially given the increased opportunities which solicitors now have to act as advocates. There are many ways of addressing these issues, but what I am suggesting is that there is a role for the biographical approach, and in particular, there's a case for promoting a rather special kind of contemporary legal biography, because you can't get over the difficulty of professional confidence. You will never be able to see the practice files which solicitors build up. So what do you do? I think we do interviews, structured interviews. Of course, 
only the most incredibly grandiose project could ever claim to provide a representative, uh, much less a statistically valid sample. But we do have to start somewhere. So my second suggestion is that we could try and investigate one or two groups, different types of professional work, different types of practice. It wouldn't be terribly scientific, but I think it would at least be better than nothing. It's worth a try. And then, of course, as I think actually my work on Withers revealed, uh, self-evident really, some people would be surprised by this, solicitors are human beings. They have ambitions, achievements, successes, and failures. As I've said, I believe that very many of them have extremely interesting and on any basis worthwhile lives and that we should therefore encourage them to tell us about them. <laughs>